tennis.com podcast. And here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the tennis.com podcast. I am Ed McGrogan here today talking with Peter Bodo, sometimes known as the racket scientist. That's the uh, concept of today's podcast. Going to go over the racket scientist post of the week posted on Pete's blog, Tennis World on tennis.com. Um, uh, the main one I want to get into, Pete, is with Nadal, but um, since that is obviously the week's biggest story, him pulling out of the Olympic Games. Um, I did want to touch quickly, though, on, on the first one earlier in the week. Um, it was titled Americans in Atlanta. It was really a, a, a piece outlining that the Atlanta tournament, in a sense, became, is, became sort of a de facto um, U.S. Open in the most literal sense of the word, where it is a tournament filled with American players, um, because perhaps of the Olympics, the way the schedule is, but this is also you know a very minor tournament on the uh, U.S. Open series. I actually love the analogy uh, for I'm I'm kind of thinking of my old soccer days, the FA Cup in England. It was an all domestic affair. All these teams play each other that are only from there, and it really is kind of how it's, how a lot of these events in the U.S. Open series turn out. And then, unfortunately for American fans. When the when the chips are really at their highest at the U.S. Open and the Masters, you know the foreign guys tend to come in and uh, really take hold of things. Well, yeah, it's kind of too bad, but uh, you know it's, it's it's kind of a nice thing. You know, there's a real place for these tournaments, I think, and for smaller scale tournaments, and it's a bit of a blessing in disguise. You know, it's it's kind of ironic. I was thinking about this the other day. The Americans are, you know, we're so often accused of our mania for bigness in every sense. But if you think about it, really, the U.S. Open Series is on is on a very modest scale, and it's partly because of our current you know dearth of players. I mean, Cincinnati's a big event. You know uh, the Canadian Open. That's in Canada, but it's all you know. It's really a North American event, so that's also pretty big. But it's almost like the European clay events leading up to the French Open are more, you know, more more enamored of and and interested in their own bigness because they're Masters events. They really pack it in. They get a lot of fans in there and stuff. They're, and that you know they they've lost a little bit of what used to be their their real drawing card, which was the intimacy and a nice old world charm and ambiance. It's become a little more machine like and commercial there and. He here, ironically, if you go to an Atlanta or even a Los Angeles next week, that'll be gutted because of the Olympics. But, you know, in a typical year, you'd go there. And, you know, it's a pretty comfortable, pretty comfortable viewing experience. Yeah, it's, um, you know, those tournaments, like you said, going to certainly have fields compromised by the games and everything. Even the Masters, actually, after the Olympics, are going to suffer a little bit from that. Um, I, I was actually kind of thinking, too, about how you have these sort of all-American matches going on. It, it would kind of be a fun way to really, you know, decide those those last few, uh, you, you know, this is... This All-American Tournament, in fact, is how a lot of the uh, wild cards given to the USTA for other Grand Slam events, the reciprocal events, are really determined. It's just kind of a draw based on players from here. be kind of a neat way to spice up possibly Davis Cup, you know, things like that even, actually. Oh, yeah. You know, you also have... I mean, look, they used to have a national close. In fact, the French Open was the last Grand Slam that became an open became an open tournament. I mean, basically, the United States Open, what we now know as the U.S. Open, was originally the United States Nationals. That's basically your national championships. Now, they started to invite and allow players from foreign countries to play and compete there, which was fine. And the last one of the of the four major tournaments, the last tournament to get on board with that to allow someone other than a Frenchman in, was the French Open. So. There 
there is this great tradition of having national championships. I sometimes think it would be an interesting, you know, the, the calendar is overcrowded, but if you're going to come up with an interesting concept for a kind of a tournament, yeah, do a national championship. Do it in every country on a pro basis. Have a lot of prize money. You know, let only, you know, the citizens, you know, play, and it would be kind of a fun thing. Yeah, maybe do it all, in, you know, all the same week or something. So that, Yeah, you know, exactly, all over the world. Yeah, and, and like you said, you do see a lot of tournaments today still referred to, you know, like um, Rome you'll hear as the Italian Open, Hamburg still gets that German Open calling card and things like that. That's all derived from, I think, this really this really great history because the game's been on for so long and everything. So it's definitely something uh, I think traditionalists certainly would enjoy. I, I think that's probably the main takeaway from that um, you know you could argue that the tour should have been organized instead of along commercial lines the way it was with you know the bed at home open the bb&t open you know this open that open procter and gamble open you know whatever the sponsor name is you you could say what they really should do is build the tour around national championships and, and support each of them you know if you have to even with a with a pooled resources or something so you would have the german open would be instead of a masters in cincinnati you would have you know a, a, you know a german open would be a big Masters event, you know, so you, you could organize it according to national championships because that's really how it all started. Uh, the tours we know it today, at least the important tournaments, anyhow, all started out because they were the biggest tournaments in every country. The national championships. The uh, the other racket scientist post, like I said about Nadal pulling out, this was, um, you know, perhaps to some unexpected news. Perhaps to some, it wasn't a great surprise. Pete, you kind of in the piece really alluded to or mentioned some of the people you've talked to especially when you're over at Wimbledon from the you know from the fan comment reaction which is what I want to gauge from from these podcasts that we do here um, there's really two sorts of of main takeaways I, I think from this is one is that you do get a lot of these uh, you know knee-jerk reactions to um, you know just to just to the fact that Nadal is not going to be there and oh is it afraid of Federer <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. So we well one of one of the comments I want to take I think is a, is actually a pretty well reasoned one about this uh, from C Moore, and he or she writes um, you know a statement quote a statement often made on this site by many that make negative comments about Nadal is if is that if you play you are fit and cannot complain or use injury as an excuse for losing. Following that comment, then comes the the opposite: don't play if you are not completely fit or injured. And basically what is being said there is Nadal is really kind of damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. And he has – and I, I think that's actually the case when you were talking about fan reaction. But it's really true, I think, for a lot of what the media perceives of Nadal anyway is that he – he, you know, his his career is not only just shaped by his tennis and what he's done. His career has been, I think, justifiably in a way, just shaped by his injuries. And we're kind of always seemingly waiting for that other shoe to drop. And it just happened, you know, again now. And um, and we've seen really how much injuries have played a role in his career, and I think will continue to play a role in his career. Yeah, I mean, there's two ways to look at this. This could potentially be a career tipping point. Look, it's the second big title he's been unable to defend. Uh, you know, Wimbledon, he could not. He 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 plays that epic match, dubbed by some the greatest tennis match of all time, and he wins a Wimbledon title, and he cannot defend that title the following year. I tr tend, as a writer, to try to avoid getting into injury issues unless there's some really good palpable reason. Now, for me, 
Like when I write about the 2009 French Open when Nadal lost, you know, to the fourth round to Robin Soderling and, and that kind of ruined his streak at the French Open. Uh, and that's when he missed Wimbledon after that. So I think because he missed Wimbledon, obviously he misses a chance to defend the Wimbledon title. That was we're talking about a serious injury here. If players are just playing through and their injury is not costing them anything in terms of a real sacrifice they have to make on their schedules and stuff, then I tend to ignore it. Look, every one of these guys is playing hurt. Uh, they'll be the first to tell you, this guy's got a bad elbow, that guy's got a bad shoulder, this guy's icing, spends half his day in, in, you know, up to his neck in ice ice water. So, you know, this has become a reality of, of, of today's game. Now, you know, you go back the the whole thing sort of started. This narrative kind of started with the old Australian concept that if you were, if you stepped on a court, you were fit. You know, you didn't complain about your injuries, and you know that's fair enough. It's true, but it is a different world. You know, the media thing wasn't there so much. You know, that was really was a re- reference to you know guys who would come off the court and start complaining about their injuries. Now Nadal has never really done that, but he gets you know. These days, you know, the press leaves no stone unturned. So a guy comes off the court, if he has a history of knee injury, the guy's going to say, well, how are your knees? And he's going to have to answer. So uh, that's it, it's gotten a little garbled and confused. But, you know, you, you don't know where Nadal is at with this stuff, though, unfortunately. We, we really don't know what the future holds. Yeah, that's actually kind of why I decided to put uh, the most recent poll on the site. You know, if you haven't seen it, it's, uh, it's really kind of where do you think Nadal's stands in a way is is this injury going to be something that like we've seen the past five or six years he's had you know he's dealt with it he's had times of inactivity missing some key events like this but saying all that he's still winning slams winning huge titles came back from almost every one of these um time this these ailments and comes back with you know immense uh, play there or is this really sort of a um the frequency is just too much and now we're kind of wondering whether this may really kind of cut off this big part of his career down the line. So that's well, uh, yeah, that's you, possible. I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, one thing you don't want to do is you know he's actually gotten himself though because of this narrative, and it's kind of in, it's too bad in a way. But he's got himself in a position where you know he can he could you know almost anything that happens can be kind of justified. Now, for instance, you know we don't know how bad this. You know, I was thinking you know after writing that post, I was thinking last night and this morning. I said you know it's kind of funny, but. Let's say you're Rafael Nadal. You just won a French Open again. You got even with Djokovic. All right, Federer wins Wimbledon because you get upset by Rosal. Now he's looking at going to the Olympics. He's he's got sort of gimpy knees. Maybe you know he definitely had some treatment and some some uh, doctors, physicians looking at him and an MRIs in in London. But you know maybe he's just sitting there thinking, you know what, you know I would have loved to have carried the flag for Spain, but I'm the defending champion. I know, but it is the Olympics. It's not Grand Slam tennis. It's not adding to my Grand Slam ten- legacy. Do I really need to do that again? I mean, it sounds crazy. Would you pass an opportunity to be a flag bearer for your nation at the Olympics? But you know when you when you're in the Rafi. Nadal or Roger Federer, you could actually, after having been there, done that, said, you know what, you know, why? I've got an Olympic gold medal. I kind of, you know, that's off to the do, to-do list now. So maybe give him a state of my knees and stuff. Maybe I don't want to play. So it, it may not be as bad as we think. Well, that would certainly give the fans, I think, some more ammunition either way, fans of Rafa, fans or Roger, etc. The last part, point about the comments I want to make is that um, the, the other sort of takeaway of this is really – 
not less of what happens to Nadal and more of what happens to the rest of the Olympic tournament here. And with Nadal out, of course, the the two names that pop right away are Federer and Djokovic. Um, Murray, of course, is in there, obviously based on what he did at Wimbledon just a couple weeks ago. But really, um, a, a poster by a name, we have Crazy for Raj, even though this comment is not pro-Federer. I have to, uh, have to respect the uh, open-mindedness of this gentleman, lady here. Says... How does the media decide that Federer is the clear favor for the Olympics? I guess that's the assumption here she was making. Did Djokovic suddenly become chopped liver based on one loss to Fed? Have people forgotten the French Open or that Djokovic beat Federer in six out of their last eight meetings? So, you know, the, per, the Federer momentum is obviously, I think, at its peak now that it's been in years. I think people have been waiting to kind of get back on the Federer roller coaster, if you will, here. And, and of course, it's not without reason based on how well he played at Wimbledon but of those two players and and it was cited here that Djokovic still over the long term of recent matches has Federer's number you know who is who is in the better position for this tournament now with Rafa out of the way well the clear answer to to crazy for Roger's thing is yeah Roger because he's got the momentum you got to factor that into things I mean you know I mean and you could say long term Djokovic has had the momentum because he's won you know six of their last eight meetings but you know that was then this is now and and tennis is very much a game of what have you done for me lately let's face it Roger lately has performed spectacularly well I also like his chances against Djokovic in a best of three even more than in a best of five frankly because Federer is a little bit older Federer relies a little bit more on superior shot making which is harder to sustain over time in terms of you know go, going for the big winner pulling the trigger when he has to putting the other guy under a lot of pressure and stuff so I, I, I think Federer is well positioned so you, looking at Looking at what he did at Wimbledon, especially because it included a win over Djokovic, I could, you know, I could see the argument if for Djokovic, if Federer wouldn't have beaten him at, at Wimbledon, uh, you know, and certain, Federer certainly is not a prohibitive favorite. But the thing is, he beat Djokovic at Wimbledon, and he wins a title over Murray. Of course, he's going to be the favorite two weeks later, in a format that's actually more suitable to his game. I think for me, the uh, the most. Hmm. I don't know how to put this. The most interesting story would be you see Murray win the Olympic gold medal. He does it at Wimbledon, no less. And then the British press and everybody's still killing him for not winning a Grand Slam title five years down the road <laughs> exactly. from now. Boy, you've got a sick imagination, boy. <laughs> it's it's you know funny how those things tend to happen that way, though. So well, you know what? I'll tell you what, though. I think I think what's going to happen is you're going to get a Dennis Istomin or a Marcos Bagdadis or somebody like that winning this tournament. In in my opinion, because the Olympics, I will write about this, you know, in in the coming days as we get close to the Olympics. But you know, the Olympics, Olympics is, has always been a crapshoot. I mean, fifty percent of the gold medalists since the uh, Olympics uh, were re- tennis was reinstituted in the Olympics in 1984 half of the men that's three men of the six who won gold medals never won a grand slam uh, you know uh, you know tournament so you know it's it, Nicholas Masu is a gold medalist uh, Miloslav Machir is a gold medalist God bless him you know they're good players Machir certainly was a class above uh, you know, and probably w- maybe would have won a Grand Slam if he'd been able to play out his career. Uh, he was shortened by a back injury. But, you know, Mark Rosé is another one. A Swiss guy had a long, long career, but he was like a Stan Wawrinka type guy, never won a Grand Slam. So, look, it is a very good chance. And when you add in the fact that it's going to be best of three, it's going to be hotter probably than it usually is during Wimbledon, which means a ball going to be traveling faster, a big serve could do damage. You could have a Kevin Anderson win a gold medal. You could have a John Isner win a gold medal. So uh, I think it's going to be a surprise winner myself. We're about due for one after Nadal won the gold in Beijing. 
Yeah, anytime you can put Mark Rosé on top of Roger Federer in any career career wins list, there is certainly something to be said for kind of the unpredictability of that event and everything. There so, you go. Yep. So, Pete, thank you. We'll be back next week. Do some more racket scientist um, chatter leading up to the Olympics, of course. So, hey, uh, have you have you announced your um, uh, impending big big day yet to our listeners and readers? It, it, there's a big day coming. The uh, the gold medal match, of course. The okay. Games. We'll leave but, it at that for now, but we're going to have some good news for you folks at one of these podcasts. Yeah, we'll, we'll get it out there at some point, definitely, when time comes. Right now, it's all, all Olympics. You know that. All Olympics, all the time. That's, that's right. All right. Pete Bodo, Ragged Scientist, Ed McGrogan, thanks for listening. Tennis.com. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.